Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Elaine Carey to our show. Dr. Carey is the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. Hi, Elaine. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me today. So tell me about Oakland University and why students select both the institution and your college. Sure. So um, Oakland University has an interesting history. It started as an honors college for Michigan State, and then it became independent. And it sits, the university sits on the land of Alfred and Matilda Dodge Wilson. Um, So Matilda Dodge was one of the wives of the Dodge brothers and the Dodge brothers both passed away due to the Spanish influenza. And um, and she and the other sister-in-law sold Dodge for about $140 million in um, the 1920s, so prior to the Depression. Um, and then she, she married Alfred Wilson, who um, was a, a timber um, uh, entrepreneur. And um, so the university is, sits on the grounds of their state, and so their mansion is on their, on on the university grounds called a Meadowbrook Hall. So it's 1,500 acres. It's a beautiful campus, lots of rolling hills and wildlife, a mansion, and a university with um, lots of uh, uh, lots of connections to Detroit and to the Detroit metropolitan area. Um, So the College of Arts and Sciences is really the heart and soul of the university, like all colleges of arts and sciences. Um, What's really interesting about Oakland University is that it has always been historically kind of a working class university um, and has a working class culture, you know, that kind of get it done um, and that attitude that, that really kind of epitomizes the Detroit region. So, um, so one, we have this very beautiful campus, rolling hills and um, lots of, of uh, different amenities. And then of course, we're very close to that technological corridor that, is, um, that has been emerging here in metropolitan Detroit in the Northern suburbs. So that includes Stellantis, GM Ford, um, lots of suppliers, Amazon, um, as well as hospitals and schools but also the electric vehicle labs um, and then major mortgage and financial companies, as well as in this metropolitan area, a great music and um, performing arts and art scene too. So it's just, it's a great location for, for Dean as well as for any student. All right. Well, what's new at your college? So we have a lot of things going on. So, um, What is new, we have a new um, Master's of Social Work that is starting in the fall. This is very important to the communities um, that we serve, Oakland County, Macomb County, and Wayne County. Um, As um, many communities have found that that the need for for social workers is is extremely high. Um, And so this was a response to that. So we are beginning our first um, class coming in this fall. 
So that's really exciting. Another thing that that we um, that is new is a minor in geographic information systems. So that's another thing where mapping is really important. You know, electric vehicles, self-driving vehicles, all of those things. Um, mapping kind of fits in with that. But we're also seeing a lot of interesting uses of mapping in the social sciences whether you know, mapping crime, um, mapping housing, all of those components. So this is a minor that was started by anthropologists and historians um, and other social scientists. We also have a lot of collaborations with um, you know, the other schools. The College of Arts and Sciences is the only college on the campus, but then there are professional schools. And that was really how the university was constructed by the Wilson family. Um, so we have a, a, re, a collaboration in bioengineering, a joint, a joint degree with engineering and um, biology as well as chemistry. We also have centers that are these collaborations too. Center for Big for Data Studies and Big Data Analytics, and that's with um, obviously the college, with the the School of Business, as well as the School of Engineering, a Center for Cybersecurity with the college and the center, I mean, and the School of Engineering, as well as the Center for Biomedical Research. So we have a lot of partnerships with the faculty in the sciences and the um, William Beaumont School of Medicine at Oakland University. Our other centers that are that are kind of based here, we have a Center for Civic Engagement, which is really promoting, this is really important at this time, um, deliberative, nonpartisan, and productive dialogue, oh, um, cool. not only among students, but among faculty and community members. So we host a number of events through the year. And, um, and we believe that democracy is better served through respectful discussions about important issues. So we will be hosting um, the uh, Democratic primary for attorney general um, in a few weeks here on campus. And that is hosted with the center. We also have our newest center is the Barry K. Klein Center for Culture and Globalization. Again, this is really important to the Detroit metro area. It has always been a very global economy because of the automobile industry and other industries. And um, the purpose of this center is to recruit researchers and scholars and artists to the university to promote national and international dialogue and create opportunities for students and faculty to experience culture and globalization studies on a far greater level. So that is launching next fall with its first, um, uh, first visiting chair, who's Dream Hampton, who is a filmmaker from Detroit. So we're really excited about that. Um, some of the really interesting things that I mentioned previously that we sit on this estate is that we have, we're, we're one of the few universities that has a biological preserve of 110 acres where students study forest and meadows and streams and wetlands. Um, and that preserve and the scholars and students who study it has pr produced over 40 articles. So it's a living classroom, which is really significant. The other thing that we have is an organic farm. And so one of the newest things that will happen is, well, it's not new, it's been going on for a while, is next Monday is the first distribution for the community supported agriculture program based at our organic farm. So um, organic farming obviously is, is um, a lot of people are interested in it. 
And it connects also to with urban farming movements in Detroit and Pontiac. So those are some of the exciting things that are going around. You, you really are doing exciting things there. Holy cow. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about you for a second. Um, how's, how's the first year been? How, how did you become uh, the dean at the college? Talk, let's talk about the path first, and then we'll talk about your first year. Sure. Yeah, I, um, I didn't become um, a historian thinking I was going to be an academic. I actually pursued a degree in history, and I'm a Latin American historian who writes on contemporary Mexican and borderlands history. And I did that um, and because I wanted to be an international journalist. I, was a, I wanted to be a, a professional writer and writing about um, Latin America. And um, Latin America, any, any scholar who sits in Latin American studies, I'm also in area studies. So I was always in interdisciplinary programs. So, you know, multilingual interdisciplinary programs. And I went to the University of New Mexico for my PhD. And there, um, uh, again, wanting to be that writer, I, I didn't work in the kind of traditional graduate student way in history, which would be, you know, um, being a, a graduate assistant. Instead, my assistantship, I became, um, I, I worked for the New Mexico Historical Review, the only bilingual state journal. And, um, and so I started there. Um, actually, I started as kind of a work study type position. And then um, because I had some grant writing experience having worked in nonprofits in the state of Florida while I was working on my master's, is the director of it at, asked me, hey, could you potentially write a grant for this big um, kind of finding guide for the historical documents in the Zimmerman Library at the University of New Mexico? So these are documents on Latin American colonial history. And so I wrote that uh, through the Center for Southwest Research and that only, not only funded my, my position, um, as a researcher, but it also funded other graduate students. So I wasn't, I was working in history. I was being a working historian while I was going and finishing my PhD. And ultimately I became the managing editor for the New Mexico Historical Review. Mm -hmm. So that meant a lot of experience in university budgets and, and lobbying uh, the state legislature um, and uh, putting out a journal, meeting deadlines, um, you know, right on time, four times a year, no matter what, even if we have to work 48 hours straight, we will meet that deadline. And, um, and that kind of introduced me to higher education. So I decided to stay and, um, and I stayed in higher education. So my first position, I, I worked at the University of Detroit Mercy. So now I'm back in Detroit. That was my first job out of graduate school. Um, this is like a second home. Part of my family is my family split between New York City and oh. Detroit, my father's side of the family. So I've always been coming here and I love this area. Um, and then I went to St. John's University where I spent a large portion of my career and um, doing a lot of work, um, um, working in public projects, um, teaching students on site in libraries and archives collaborating with one of my former students, who's, his name is Ray Pun. he's a librarian. We've, we've also written articles together and, and we work together of kind of introducing students to research skills on site. And, um, and again, that was exciting. It also led to funding opportunities and then it kind of expanding that out into professional development grants, um, working with another colleague, librarian Kathy Shaughnessy and um, at St. John's and 
um, kind of that became a, a real interest of those kind of outward looking collaborations. Um, but I also became the chair of the history department. Wow. While, um, so being in that leadership position, um, as well as working on, on kind of in public history, um, from I was uh, nominated to be the vice president for the American Historical Association's teaching division. And um, so I, I served from 2013 to 2016 in that position, which really gave me um, opportunities to understand my discipline more at a national level, but also changes in education because there's a lot of collaboration through professional associations with other disciplines. So I worked a lot with the National Council for Social Studies, the Modern Language Association and others. So that was a real introduction. Um, into you know other fields and other areas, as well as being a faculty member, and um, and so that that led in part to I think um, a recruitment. And so this is my second dean position. I was previously a dean at another institution, and I was drawn to Oakland one because of the area, but I also really wanted to work with the president, um, Dr. Ora Hirsch Petskovitz, who's um, came out of the uh, University of Indiana Medical School and, um, and also the um, University of Michigan Hospital System. And um, I was really excited to work with her and I liked her vision. Um, so it was place and, and people. Um, I, I actually came to this university um, in 1993, the first time I came, I, I was at the University of Michigan and Research Institute and my cousin said, um, I'm going to come get you and we're going to go to a concert. And I came to Oakland University to see a Jimmy Buffett concert wow. in 1993. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> because there's a big amphitheater on the campus, too. And that was because I kept saying, Where are we? He's like, We're at a university. And I was like, Well, because again, the rolling hills and stuff, I was like, Well, I don't really. At that time, you know, I, I said, well, I don't see the university because the way we came in, but then we drove around. I was like, oh, there's a university. And that was the first time I was on campus. So I have, I've been intrigued with Oakland for a long time. Well, you know, when did you decide to make that jump? You know, I mean, I know, like for me, I didn't really think too much about administration until I became a department chair. And then all of a sudden I started thinking about it. When did you decide it's time for me to kind of leave, I don't want to say leave your roots, but it's really hard to step away from that faculty position. So, yeah, I mean, and, and I remained active in, as a faculty member. I do continue to publish in, um, in my field and, um, and that, that is a passion, right? So that's a passion and, and you have to really carve out that time and, and that becomes, um, that is difficult. And, uh, but I, I made the decision in part, you know, some of that was that experience working with the American Historical Association. Um, I had also been the associate director for the Center for Teaching and Learning at St. John's University for a number of years prior to becoming department chair. And, um, and I started to just get a better sense of how the um, different departments operated. Um, and I don't, not necessarily even departments, but colleges what were some of the requirements, like tenure and promotion requirements for a pharmacist is dramatically different from tenure and promotion requirements for a photographer, very different fields. And, and so that helped to kind of get that sense and, and working, I think, through the, you know, being active in my discipline, working in 
the, for the Center for Teaching and Learning, where I was doing a lot of mentoring and faculty development, as well as in my own field, you know, in student development and teaching, that um, when I became a department chair, I, I thought, well, this is, this is interesting. And, and I was not an administrator as a department chair, I was a faculty department mm -hmm. chair, which is a little bit different. And, um, and so, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the challenges. I enjoyed the ability to kind of clear paths and let, um, let you know, uh, scholars, historians in this case shine and, and be able to um, do their best work. Um, whether it's, you know, not only with faculty, but also with students. And, um, and so, so I enjoyed that. And that was when that decision began. Um, and, I, and I was hired as a Dean while I was on sabbatical working on a new project. Okay. So you still get to do research, correct? Or you still write articles? Yes, I still do a little research. Um, you know, part of that is, is in part the, the advantages of, of what has taken place technologically, um, such as we're doing a podcast, for instance, right. right? You know, 20 years ago, you know, deans wouldn't listen to other deans in a podcast. It would always be at a conference. So, you know, that shift in, in access to information has been really important. And so that, that it does allow me, one, having the methodological training, um, having that experience of working in archives when, and, you know, when they're not cataloged or when they were using, you know, cards versus now. Um, I understand how they kind of are put together maybe in a different way. And, and that um, the, the um, ability to access information remotely has been helpful. And then when I can, I go into the field. That is, you know, I, I interview a lot of presidents and deans and chancellors, and I'm telling you, they all want to get they all want to be part of their profession where they came from. You're, you're one of the few who actually still get to stay connected, which I'm, I'm very impressed with. I do. I collaborate with a colleague of mine who's now a provost. We agreed to collaborate together when we both became deans. That was really helpful. Um, and now I also collaborate with um, a scholar who is um, also has a training in journalism and, and again, that's really important, right? Having those collaborative relationships that allow your work to continue. Yeah. It would yeah. be very hard to do that um, by myself, like I did as a, young, as a younger scholar, where I might, I might be collaborating, getting feedback on my writing and things like that, and, and you know, access to resources, but not really kind of pulling a project together. So that's, that would be a big recommendation. All right, start creating those collaborations um, if you're in a discipline where it's not natural. So, you know, in the sciences, it is. You may still be running a lab, although that could be pretty difficult. Um, well, can you talk now about your first year as dean at OU and the lessons you've learned so far there? Yeah, there's been a lot. I mean, I think, I think in every place is knowing the students, um, knowing who they are. Um, the schools they come from, the communities they come from, um, you know, a little bit, you know, obviously, you know, universities have demographic information, um, you know, so, so you can understand that, but, but really understanding, you know, the communities in the area, economic background, um, I think that's really important. And I am, and, and I think the fact that I am a historian, I'm fascinated by place. 
right? So place is really important. One, it sets the setting for doing, you know, to study other aspects, but place is tremendously important. And so, you know, that that's significant in understanding, you know, who your students are, who are you serving, who who are you working with, and and um, you know, who are you mentoring to become future professionals and leaders. Um, so that's I think is is really important in any position. Um, the other aspect is obviously, you know, to know your faculty, um, to be their best advocate, especially for faculty who maybe aren't in your same field, is to understand their fields, take the time to understand them, ask lots of questions, visit them uh, in their labs or in, in their communities, in their departments. That's been hard because of COVID, so frequently it's been virtual. Um, but, you know, know their, their research, their grants, um, their scholarship, go to their performances. Uh, and again, it's to, to really understand um, the work that they're doing. And I'll be frank, sometimes I've, I have visited faculty who are working on a particular topic and, and they're explaining their research. And um, you know, I have to say, okay, yeah, you have to explain it like you're explaining it to your 13 year old kid because yeah. So, and, and being able to ask those kind of silly questions, but that's how you learn. and. And that's how you can better advocate for them is by having a better grasp. And usually you're advocating about their research to somebody who isn't an expert either. So it's, you're always one up on them, right? I've, you've got to spend some time with a chemist or with a biologist and, and they're showing you these things. And so you're like, okay, I can see it. I understand it. And you're explaining it to somebody who hasn't had that time to hang out in a, in a lab with a chemist or, or a biologist. Well, what do you think are the most important qualities for someone to excel as a dean then? Well, I think it's learning, right? You have to be comfortable to, um, I, I would, what I always say is I'm, I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. And, um, and I think that that's really helpful. And, and part of that, I think, is also I spent half my childhood outside of the U.S. Um, my work is outside of the U.S., uh, I'm, you know, comfortable being uncomfortable. I also work on difficult topics. Um, so, so again, that kind of, um, in many ways, uh, is, is part of just what I do and, and who I am. Um, so I think that's part of it, you know, being, being able that you're not going to be the expert on every, you know, on 18 different fields and, you know, many more subfields in your area. And so be curious, um, ask questions, um, and, and continue to learn about them. I think that's, that's the best way and that it's going to change, right? Uh, right. Your colleagues research um, changes over their career. And so, you know, that's, that's important to, to kind of constantly be checking in and, and understanding that, um, you know, as, as you're a dean. And, and there are lots of different ways to make those connections, whether it's you know, basic stuff of reading the annual reports to, you know, visiting, um, going to talks, things like that. Mm. Well, what's been your proudest moment so far at the college? My proudest moment has really been, um, I think, how the faculty have responded to COVID and to really, you know, we talk about pivoting and things like that. And, you know, so people here, they, you know, at OU, they move their classes online in, you know, literally a couple of days. Um, and that's everything, right? So all of a sudden, you know, in a very short period of time, they, they built an online university out of a brick and mortar university. And that wasn't easy. 
Um, and, and that meant that was a tr that's a tremendous amount of work. And so I'm really proud of that. And I'm also proud of how the faculty have um, continued to really meet the students where they are, understanding this is different. And, and responding to that and, and trying to figure out what works. We didn't know what worked, right? Who, right. you know, we'd be teaching classes on Zoom or, you know, using different types of digital platforms and, and you know, using these different platforms. Um, and here it's Moodle. So, um, you know, so, so how do you scale up if you haven't been using that platform at the level that maybe a, um, a designer had thought about using the platform, you know, and had spent years training to build these kinds of platforms. And now you're having to do this in a short period of time. And then also recognizing that students learn differently and they respond differently and, and having to constantly consider that and balance that. Um, I'm amazed by that. Yeah. Well, let's change topics. What do you think are the major challenges and opportunities that colleges and universities will face over the next, let's say, five to 10 years? You know, the challenges are going to be, um, you know, the things that we were talking about. And, you know, so I used to always give this, um, this talk where I would say, you know, I didn't live through the golden age of higher education because I'm a historian. So I always have to have some kind of, you know, and, and golden ages are really important in history. There's tons of them, right? So, so anyway, take it as you will, right? Golden age of higher education in the United States. Um, and you can, but, so I would make that comment. Well, now I realize I have lived through one because what happened in March of 2020 changed higher education forever. And, um, and so I recognize that. And, and we just don't know how, what will be that impact. So here in the Midwest and in the Northeast, we had already been talking about the demographic cliff. Um, we had been uh, concerned about, you know, the declining high school graduates. Um, that, that still remains the case. But we also know that um, universities are economic engines for communities um, and that they serve a, a tremendous role. And, and you know, the, it, their roles are multifaceted. And so, and, and I believe in, in um, the benefits of higher education. I believe in, in um, what higher education can do. I have seen how it can change people's lives and I'm really committed to that. So, um, and, and so that means, you know, we do need to be thinking about those questions of, of access, of inclusion, of, of diversity and of equity always. And we have to embrace um, idea or DEI. We also are going to have to as face the challenges that um, are going to come after COVID. So, you know, the mental health challenges. And one of the things I'm also really proud about is for the faculty is they brought these issues forward about mental, students' mental health challenges, especially in the performing arts and in writing and rhetoric where they have these very close relationships with students because they see their writing and they see their performances. Um, and so that's been something that we've been working on the college. How do we address that? And that's gonna be an ongoing issue. So um, a lot of faculty have, have expressed interest in mental health first aid and other types of programming and we're pursuing that. And, and I think we're gonna be doing that for a long time, just what, what we're seeing in the literature on higher education 
and, and in the media about the numbers of young people who are struggling with mental health issues. Um, that, that's important for us because we are training, you know, the future leaders, um, whether it's, you know, industry leaders, community leaders, business leaders, um, you know, we have that role and, and that's going to be more important. And we can, I think it's important that we're engaging in those conversations to talk about the struggles and, and how to build those better collaborations and partnerships. We're going to have to do that in a, a very intentional way um, over the next couple of years. I think also we know that um, just looking at the data here in this college, in the College of Arts and Sciences at OU, is that um, that it was noticeable the downward trend of household income and the impact of COVID on household income. That's important to know. That means if we, we need better wraparound services for students. We know students are struggling academically perhaps, but it's more than that. And so one of the things I'm really thrilled and proud about at OU is OU has that infrastructure in place. Um, you know, housing and security support, um, food and security support, um, you know, help with, you know, everything you can possibly imagine, funding, all of those, and has really been um, a great partner, but that's going to continue, that, that will need to continue in into the the future and and to be honest we just don't know i mean we're seeing the the numbers of covid cases increase again so we're not out of the pandemic and so this is going to be an ongoing need um the other thing i think is is as somebody who is in the humanities and and um and oversees a liberal arts college is is really the significance of liberal arts right the the ethics um the philosophy the history um, the art, the um, performances that that really kind of feed the soul are really important. And so on one hand, you know, we're, we are training scientists, we're training physicists and social workers, um, and we're training biologists and dancers. You know, so all, you know, and that's one of the things that's really important to continue to advocate is that you can't just have cities without the arts, without the humanities. It is those fields that turn Rust Belt cities around, um, and those remain important. And that that continues in some some cases to be a struggle at institutions. At OU, again, kind of that starting as a liberal arts college, that legacy is really important to us, and that's um, important to the college too. And and it's important to my work as a historian, you know, broadly as a humanist and other humanists also. Well. What do you think will be the role of the physical campus for universities in the future? I mean, like, how do you think staff and faculty will do their work down the road? Yeah, you know, I think um, it's going to be interesting, you know, and um, we're seeing changes in other fields, you know, where engineers and architects, people who worked in teams and always, you know, in a physical space are working remotely, in part because the technology is better and they can access, um, you know, things in the cloud. We're seeing how scientists collaborate, you know, across, across places, across the globe. Um, so the workplace is going to change. And, um, and what might have been the vision of baby boomers for the workplace is going to be very different for um, you know millennials who are faculty members um, 
uh, and Gen Z in the next generation, right? It's, it's going to be very different. They're gonna have different expectations. And so I think our model in higher education is going to evolve because of those changes and expectations. And, and that's just not for students, but it's for faculty and staff right. too. I don't know what the answer is. Again, you know, I'm thinking, well, you know, again, here's since 2020, we're relearning right. things. And, and um, but, but just if seen in other industries and what are, how um, different generations perceive work and, and work-life balance, we're going to be responding to that. Well, you know, you have coined a new phrase, the, the, what I want to call it, the new golden age of higher ed. I mean, <laughs> as you started to point that out, which I, I never really thought about that, but you're, you're hitting it right on the mark. So it's going to be, I think it's going to be fun. I think somebody in your position, even though there probably will be some difficulties, I think you're going to have some, some great opportunities. We just don't know what they will be like. Yeah. I mean, that's, I'm always, you know, I, again, it's, I'm intrigued by it. I don't, but I can't say what, I can't predict, right? I don't have a crystal ball, um, but it's intriguing and, um, and exciting, but as well as things that are intriguing and exciting can also be a little scary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so here's a fun question. If you had any extra budget money right now with no strings attached, how would you spend it? Invest in people. Invest in people. Always invest in people. Right. You're, we're at a university that what what we we produce knowledge, we produce the people who produce the knowledge. So invest in people. So um, first, I would, again, those kind of services for students, scholarships and funding, fellowships, research funds for students, undergraduate research, um, you know, graduate student stipends. Those are all very, very important. So um, that would be if I had. So let's just talk about unlimited money. That would be the first phase. Right? So, and the second phase would obviously be funding for faculty too. It's the same thing. Now faculty benefit for, for um, funding for graduate students because then they have um, help in their labs and in their other programs and in their research. But um, again, I think it's just really important and funds, additional funds for research, for scholarship, for um, uh, professional development. Um, also, one of the things we have at OU is we have funds for that, for, for, for um, professional development leaves. Those would be great to expand professional development leaves to work and be more integrated into community or into other organizations, I think would be really important. Um, also, again, investing in people, same thing, you know, investing in staff at that same level. And that investment is a lot of different ways, professional development, um, technology that that can be you know transportable from home to work um, and really helping you know for them to scale up to, for different career pathways that they may wish to take so and then I would also like um, a new science building and a new performing arts building there you go that's right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> go big or stay home that's right right, my right. Motto. yeah okay. yeah well that's great so here's my last question for you do you have any favorite books on leadership that you would recommend to the other academic leaders listening today? Right. So, so Dave, I do write on leadership. I write on women who are leaders of organized crime, drug trafficking organizations. Um, so that's probably not the best model for uh, higher education. Um, but uh, so, you know, I think as a dean starting out, especially in my field, the College of um, 
Arts and Sciences, uh, the Council for Colleges of Arts and Sciences is a great resource. Um, and so is um, the Academy of Colleges. I mean, ACAD, which is um, uh, for deans is also another great resource. And they publish a primer, the, the resource handbook for academic deans, which I think is a great place to start um, oh. for anyone who's coming into leadership um, and needs maybe some mentoring, some, um, you know, some, uh, a team of support. It's really important to have that network of support around you. And I've gained a lot from that. Um, the other thing, just like how faculty made that shift to um, online and teaching online, these organizations made a shift also to support deans and associate deans and department chairs um, in a virtual setting. So they're just really great resources. Um, as a humanist, I think there's some really important things, you know, that we have to keep in mind about the significance of liberal arts. So uh, George Anders, you can do anything, the surprising power of a useless liberal arts degree. I have a lot of those and um, they can be powerful. So um, that's one of my favorites. And uh, Richard D. Weiler's The Evidence, liberal arts needs, uh, lives of consequences, inquiry, and accomplishment. Um, for those who need uh, more quantitative data rather than qualitative, this is a great resource for the, to, to be a strong advocate for the role of the liberal arts. Well, those are some great suggestions. Thanks so much. Well, thanks, Dave. Well, I think we're going to end our show. I had a lot of fun talking with you today. I learned quite a bit. So Thank you so much for being on our podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.